In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents... Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny... One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Politically Georgia podcast, where we bring you news and analysis from all the latest Georgia shenanigans in Congress and under the Gold Dome. And today, the last day of the year, because we're, we're taping this from New Year's Eve at the Dunwoody Bureau of the Atlanta Journal Constitution. <laughs> where we want to be to close out exactly the old year. Exactly where we want to be, yeah, <laughs> is Tamar Halloran, our former AJC Washington correspondent turned AJC enterprise reporter extraordinaire. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us for this monumental, historic, last day of the year recap of all the top 10 stories, political stories in Georgia. And look, you know, we knew this year would be busy. We knew it'd be a crazy year, but... We didn't, I did, at least I didn't expect it to be so wild and hectic being an off year like 2019 is. You know, 2020, 2018 were nuts. I thought it'd be a little bit tamer, but it really wasn't. And as you'll see as we go through our list this episode, how many of the stories that I think if you would have talked to us this time last year in 2018 when we were predicting our big stories for 2019, a lot of these issues and names wouldn't have even been on our radar at yeah. all. And how many of these stories could have been number one? stories in any other year really like I was thinking about that as we were crafting this as well like wow you number five number four a a lot of these stories that are kind of middle of the list could well have been the top story of the year in any other year, but this one was just nuts. And I think an exception is, is let's kick off our, our list, number 10, is the, the fight over farmers. And that was something that coming out of 2018 we knew was going mm-hmm. to be a big issue. Hurricane Michael decimated southwest Georgia. It, it made landfall in mid-October. And it was taking months to, to, first of all, just clean up the damage and and kind of assess how much aid was needed from the federal government. So we knew it was going to be an ongoing issue. And you covered the frustration coming from farmers and growers down in South Georgia who'd waited for months, months and months for any sort of federal aid that's still only just beginning to trickle through. Exactly. And and a lot of the farmers you talked to and agriculture interests across the state pointed to a visit um, that, that not only President Trump made down there, but VP Pence, all of the state's top leaders promising to give whatever aid was necessary for these farmers to rebuild and get ready for the, the 2019 planting season. And they were saying, what in the world is taking so long in D.C.? And this became a, one of the top priorities of, of, of new governor, Brian Kemp. And it was really a frustration for, for, for folks on the ground who saw, you know, the agricultural secretary, Sonny Perdue, is a Georgia Republican. You had all the state's Republican leadership, many of them very closely allied with President Trump, who were all pulling the same way, you know, all, all pulling on the same kind of tug-of-war rope, um, 
to try to get more federal funding for this. And yet it took so long to get it. And what was so frustrating is that no one in Washington disagreed that, that these people and these farmers were not deserving or, or that they didn't need aid. Um, in the past, Washington has always kind of delivered aid money to wherever it was needed. Lawmakers just knowing, you know, it might not be our disaster, you know, a disaster in my backyard this time, but I better approve it so that if it happens to me and my constituents, Congress will be speedy. But the, the issue this time is that aid money for Hurricane Michael victims, as well as victims of wildfires in California, mudslides, there was a volcanic eruption in Hawaii, flooding in the Midwest. It got tied up into a broader fight over aid money for Puerto Rico, which was an issue that President Trump really took to on his Twitter feed, was saying that the Puerto Rican government was corrupt. He didn't trust um, their handling of Mm -hmm. aid dollars in the past and and kind of said he wasn't going to give any more money to to Puerto Rico. And then tied into all this as well was a separate uh, aspect of this that was really hurting farmers was the trade war and the, the specter of tariffs and, and, and other price increases that were really hobbling farmers in Georgia. Exactly. And, and you talk to a lot of the Republican lawmakers in Georgia, and a lot of them are free traders who absolutely hate things like tariffs. But, but this was an aspect of Trump's pl- platform that I think a lot of folks quietly had a really hard time with because they'd long been taught the GOP orthodoxy was that tariffs are, are really bad. But you saw pretty much all of Georgia's lawmakers, including Senator David Perdue, a close ally of President Trump, kind of eventually stand behind the president and say, you know what, especially in the case of China, this is worth it if at the end of the day we can get a better trade deal from them. That brings us to number nine, voting rights in the forefront. And again, this is one of those issues that could have been much further down the list than any other year, including last year, it was was further down the list. It was closer to number one um, because this was a continuation of that fight between Stacey Abrams and Governor Kemp, um, all about voting rights and ballot access and the purge of voters and access to the ballots and uh, counting and uh, counting of provisional ballots and absentee, you name it. There's so many different issues tied into that. Our colleague Mark Nisi has been covering this pretty much nonstop um, for the last few years. But um, this was a year, because there is, there's only municipal elections and special elections, this is one of those issues that is going to loom even larger in 2020, where the state officials are scrambling to meet a court-ordered deadline to to have these new voting machines um, to replacing Georgia's 18-year-old outdated computerized systems um, in place before any votes get cast in 2020. That, inc- that that starts with, really, the biggest one is the March 24th presidential primary. Exactly. 27,000 voting machines across the state. And this is something we've seen them kind of tested a little bit um, in, in municipal and, and kind of local level elections in the past couple months. But this is something the state has gotten a lot of negative attention for nationally because Stacey Abrams kind of really captured the media attention. And it's something I know Governor Kemp is really sensitive about since as Secretary of State, he was the one overseeing a lot of this. Yeah, this one of those issues that has festered, you know, for years in Georgia, right? A lot of these issues are not new. The long lines of the polls, different standards for 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 counting provisional absentee ballots, um, you know, precinct closures close to elections. These are issues that have festered for a long time. But last year's, I should say, 2018's uh, very narrow uh, gubernatorial race between Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp, and the and the and the fact that voting rights was was squarely at the center of it really kind of propelled it to be a, 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 you know, into the national spotlight. And expect this to be something that that plays out for for 2020 as well. Um, You know, you've seen national headlines with with any sort of voter roll 
purges. Um, there's the ongoing litigation that Stacey Abrams' group uh, Fair Fight has brought against uh, Georgia's voting system. And you also see Democrats who are continuing to push for things like paper ballots, a revival of the full Voting Rights Act from uh, 1965. So this is going to continue to be an issue going into 2020. And as 2020 dawns, there's still the threat of more court intervention, right? There's there's several lawsuits, including one from Stacey Abrams' Fair Fight Action voter rights group that is still pending. So we could see a lot more action there. Number eight is a pretty broad umbrella group that we thought kind of encapsulated a lot of the different changes in Georgia, but shifting politics in the state. And there's a lot of change at the Gold Dome and the federal delegation. It started with more than a dozen new Democratic faces in the Georgia legislature. These, these are lawmakers that flipped state legislative seats, mostly in the suburbs that are long were seen as Republican locks. You had Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan and Governor Kemp, freshly, newly in office, and they're kind of almost triangulating around a weakened David Ralston, who faced more uh, insurgency from his caucus than we've seen in the past. And then in Congress, you had a lot of changes. Exactly. We had Lucy McBath and her, her uh, upset victory over Karen Handel in 2018. That's Newt Gingrich's and Johnny Isaacson and Tom Price's old um, congressional seat that she was able to flip. And, and we, we knew to kind of keep a close eye on her. But then there were also some surprise retirements that we saw kind of bookending the year. We saw Rob Woodall, who a, a Republican who was elected in 2010, who, who had the narrowest margin of victory out of any incumbent in Congress by less than 500 votes in in his Gwinnett and Forsyth district. He announced he'd retire, I believe it was in February. And then we saw right at the end of the year, Tom Graves, the longest serving Republican from a Northwest Georgia district, announcing he was going to hang up his hat too. And add to that, the the even more recent news, so recent that it wasn't even in the story because the story was written last week, um, but that civil rights icon and long serving Georgia Democrat Representative John Lewis has stage four pancreatic cancer. He says he'll fight it. He says he'll he'll push through it and he'll receive treatment probably in Washington as he as he continues to to cast votes and be a presence in in the halls of Congress. But you know, frankly speaking, uh, pancreatic cancer is one of those deadliest cancers you can have, and the survival rate um, is 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 dismal. Um, so he's he says he can fight it fight through it, and his allies say if anyone can fight this, it's John Lewis. Um, but at the, uh, as we end the year, there's a big question mark hanging over how he'll do his duties and how often he'll be in Washington to cast these votes. And I think you'll, you should expect a lot of Democrats will not want to step in or, no. or do anything, you know, showing that they're getting impatient with, with Congressman Lewis. But at the same time, it, it certainly is something to watch. If not for this cycle, then, you know, in, in the years to come. And this is, of course, a heavily Democratic district in town, Atlanta. So really, the race is going to be in the Democratic primary. This is the same district that President Trump called that was in horrible shape and falling apart because he was so upset that Congressman Lewis was was going to boycott his inauguration back in 2017. It's the, the you know the the fight in fifth right so the opposite of some of the suburban districts that we've seen in the sixth and seventh. So number seven kind of dovetails with that because um, we we mentioned some of the new players at the Georgia Capitol, but Stacey Abrams is not new and she's not exactly. She's, she's not an elected player at the Georgia Capitol, but her, her role and profile has had an outsized influence ever since her narrow defeat to Governor Kemp. And she, that makes her the seventh biggest political story in Georgia this year. And she could well become one of the, you know, the number one or number two next year um, based on how 2020 plays out. Because in defeat, her, pro, her profile 
has grown exponentially, it seems, this year. Exactly. She became a, a darling of the national media during her run for governor in, in 2018. And it seemed kind of like the world was her, her oyster in 2019. It started with her her highly anticipated State of the Union rebuttal, a job that in the past, the, the folks who've been assigned it have been memorable for how Badly. Badly <laughs> That's mean, but, but for all sorts of curses, you know, Marco yeah. Rubio with his sip of water and, and Joe Kennedy with his glistening lips. Bobby it's, Jingle. It's a tough assignment. And so, you know, Stacey Abrams really had her work cut out for her. And, and by all by most accounts, she did really, really well. You couldn't avoid headlines of Stacey Abrams if you tried over the last year. It was it was remarkable um, for us back in Georgia to see because usually a, pres- a, a gubernatorial candidate loses and you know quietly retires. So may- maybe might jump back into the spotlight here and there. But how often have you heard about Jason Carter since 2014? Right um, here and there, he'll make an endorsement and he'll make a little splash of news. But Stacey Abrams was constantly in the headlines for many for for. A range of different things. She she expanded her fair fight voting rights group to to about twenty battleground states all over the nation. She started a fair count census group. She started a, a, a progressive think tank by the end of the year. She went on an international book tour. She hit the late night talk show circuit. She courted presidential candidates. She she had she was she had sellout podcasts. I mean, there was headlines every other day about how she is. She is not ruling out a a vice presidential bid, things like that. And a lot of that started back home in Georgia. You know, the the big race going into 2019 was David Perdue's Senate race kind of running for a second term. And Democrats were looking for a very high profile challenger. Person number one that they were trying to court was Stacey Abrams. You saw people like Chuck Schumer make personal appeals, not only behind the scenes, but by the end in public to the press about how much he would love to have Stacey Abrams running against David Perdue. She uh, played a little bit of, you know, Played a little coy at the beginning, I'd mm-hmm. say, but but ruled it out fairly early in, in April, the process. Yeah, yeah. But she froze the field until she did. Exactly. They were everyone from from all the all four of the top candidates in the race now down you know down to up to the biggest you know national figures were all waiting on her to decide. Um, and as the year ended, really, I mean, Google her name right now. You'll see her link to speculation that she could be any number of running mate, running mate to any number of White House hopefuls from Pete Buttigieg to, to Joe Biden to Elizabeth Warren. So there's uh, there, there's no doubt in my mind that sometime in early 2020, she'll be on lots of short lists. Sure. And I mean, there, there's also the question of whether she wants to wait until 2022 to challenge Brian Kemp again, which, you know, she's long said being governor of Georgia is kind of her number one issue and or sorry, her number one kind of goal that goal. she's wanted. Um, and that kind of pivots us really well into number the number six story on our list. Brian Kemp's first year in office. Greg, you've been kind of on the front lines of, of all of that. Um, and and talk to me about what you were expecting going into the year and what we ended up seeing from him, some of the bigger surprises. I like to think there's sort of duality of Governor Brian Kemp. Um, he, he kicked off the year with an inaugural speech that blended a pledge to unite voters with a promise to pursue his conservative campaign pledges. And he, 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 he struck that duality throughout the year. Um, it was really interesting to see because he did things that Governor Nathan Deal, who was much seen as much more moderate, would would never embrace. He expanded um, medical marijuana program to to allow the cultivation and distribution of, of medical marijuana in Georgia. That's something that that the Governor Deal said should be left up to federal lawmakers. He won approval to to basically do a limited expansion of of, of the Medicaid program. Again, something that the Governor Deal never really put his political capital behind. Um, 
and really infuriates Democrats who say that a full-on expansion uh, should have been embraced. And you know, and he surprised some of his critics with um, with a range of appointments to to top seats, and we'll talk about one of those appointments later on. But but also to, to you know to judicial posts and to a criminal justice posts and into the insurance commissioner um, that, that were history and precedent setting, historical and precedent setting. Um, but on the other hand, he also, and I think if you have one major takeaway from this this past legislative session, a lot happened. But one big takeaway was the anti-abortion heartbeat bill. And that kind of consumed a lot of the oxygen at the session, really energized conservatives who said this is why we voted for for Governor Kemp and really infuriated liberals and a lot of moderates, too, who said that they did not want to engage in a new culture war in Georgia. Exactly. And we'll talk a little bit more uh, about this a little bit later in the podcast. But abortion was not necessarily one of those fights that we were expecting to have in, in 2019. You look at some of Brian Kemp's biggest moments from his 2018 campaign. You think about his Jake ad polishing the shotgun. You think about his pickup truck with the explosives talking about illegal immigration. Those issues weren't as much on at the forefront this year. No, there was no real concerted effort to crack down illegal immigration, to expand gun rights, to, to pass a religious liberty bill, which was another one of his campaign promises, in which all those, th- those three issues got more ink in the 2018 campaign, certainly, than abortion did. Um, because Georgia already had a 20-week ban on abortion, it wasn't certain that Georgia would go um, go this route. And there, there, there was even some... House Republicans who were very and, and Senate Republicans who were queasy about about taking this path, but once Governor Kemp endorsed it, it became this dominant threat of the uh, of, of the set past session. And we'll we'll talk a lot more about that later because that is another one of the big stories. But number five would be yet another story that could top the list in another year. But Georgia really truly got battleground treatment uh, this past year. Presidential candidates swarmed the state. You had Georgia on the receiving end of a wave of attention. And you also encouraged by Abrams, who we mentioned earlier, um, who warned it would be political malpractice for national Democrats to ignore Georgia. And you also capped the year with Georgia's first presidential primary debate since 1992. And, and Georgia, and especially Atlanta, have long been kind of a political ATM for, for candidates seeking the presidency. Lots of money in Atlanta, lots of big businesses, wealthy executives to, to tap for your campaign fundraising. But it was interesting to see how many top-tier candidates were coming here to, to show that they thought or, you know, to broadcast that they saw Georgia as a battleground state. And a lot of that did come from Abrams. She's huddled with most I think pretty much all the candidates. Exactly. To, to talk about issues that she cares about, particularly voting rights. And, and you saw a lot of those candidates then turn around and immediately do events right after touting how much not only did they believe in Abrams, but how much they saw that as a top tier issue. What we still haven't seen is much on the ground presence from these these campaign op- operations. They all have offices and staffs in early voting states like South Carolina, Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada. But they don't have any real big structures here yet in Georgia. Um, and that'll be, and they're starting to develop them in some of the Super Tuesday states. Georgia's not one of those states, but they're starting to see that a little bit. But as the year ended, I got word that Elizabeth Warren had some paid staffers now in Georgia working, um, you know, kind of seed the ground for her campaign. 
So we'll see how much Georgia will become a battleground state. But clearly, even Republicans were saying this year that, hey, Georgia's Georgia's on the target list. Exactly. You saw Trump's super PAC even include Georgia on its list of kind of five frontline states that it was planning to invest in heavily to ensure that it would stay in the Republican column. Um, two other things I wanted to mention in relation to this. First of all is Georgia's two Senate races. Uh, we'll talk more about the Johnny Isaacson race in a little bit, but, but the David Perdue race as well. Two open seats. Well, no, not open. Two competitive seats um, in 2020, I think, has driven a lot of interest in Georgia. But you really haven't seen a ton of outside investment as of yet, but perhaps the promise of that. Not only that, but Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms becoming a top surrogate for, for Joe Biden. She's flown to a lot of the debates to, to be kind of a media surrogate to talk about how great Joe Biden is. And, and you followed her a little bit on the road. Yeah, no Georgia Democrat has played a more prominent role in endorsing a candidate. That's because a lot of Stacey Abrams, a lot of other um, top Democrats are so far neutral in the race. But Mayor Bottoms is out and about. She's been in South Carolina. She's been in Iowa. She was in Houston with him at the debate. So she's playing a very forceful role as a surrogate of his. And it'll be really fun to watch to see how that evolves next in 2020. Because <laughs> a lot of t- a lot of you folks will be listening to this when it's next year, so I can't say that. But in 2020, um, to see how many other Georgia candidates and, and, and figures play prominent roles because if you're Stacey Abrams and you're 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 jockeying for VP, you don't want to endorse anyone, let, lest that you know come backfire you. But if you're another um, figure, uh, I'll talk about um, Calvin Smyrie, the dean of the Georgia State House. He he endorsed um, Joe Biden too, and Joe Biden is clearly winning the endorsement uh, hunt in Georgia so far, at least among elected officials. If you're if you're Calvin Smyrie, will he end up playing a you know a bigger role in the national campaign? Who knows, but it's probably likely. Our number four item we talked about a little bit earlier, but abortion was truly kind of our surprise issue of of 2019. And, you know, when when we first got into the year, we we heard Governor Kemp talking about the potential for a trigger law, something that if, if, you know, if the Supreme Court overturns Roe versus Wade, makes abortion illegal, Georgia would also kind of snap back or, or, you know, would also have a similar law kind of outlawing the practice. But over time, we saw steam pick up behind a heartbeat law, which would um, ban most abortions after six weeks of pregnancy when the when some believe that you can detect a heartbeat in a fetus. Yeah. And Kemp faced a lot of pushback from conservative activists who said, look, the trigger law is fine, but it, don't, it won't do much. You know, you, you're 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 depending on a U.S. Supreme Court decision that conservative anti-abortion activists have, have longed for for decades. But you know, it's 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 not as tangible as as let's say the 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 heartbeat bill was. So you saw that sort of morph into a enormous debate, a really um, consequential debate under the Gold Dome that really marked um, Kemp's first ter- first year as governor, uh, because this was a governor who is the first lifelong Republican elected governor in Georgia since Reconstruction, and he came in there with a promise to to maintain his campaign pledges. And, and this was one of them. And it was a very emotional fight. Um, Democrats used aggressive tactics that we haven't seen Democrats use in, in past years. There was a walkout on the House floor, a protest. Alyssa Milano, the actress, came on Signe Die to the state capitol to warn that passing this could lead to a Hollywood boycott of Georgia. Um, both sides figured and, and, and estimated accurately that the law would be struck down or blocked by the courts. And that's exactly what happened. Exactly. And Georgia was just one of many states across the country that, that have enacted similar laws. Georgia's go, goes into effect in uh, January of 2020. It would have gone into effect, yeah, right now. Exactly. And 
you know, the the law immediately prompted blowback from Hollywood, which has invested a ton of money into Georgia, building up the studio system, lots of jobs tied up in that. And and, and traditionally, this is a sector that Republican governors, including Sonny Perdue and Nathan Deal, have really spent a lot of time and effort and money trying to attract. And all of a sudden, you're, you're seeing this blowback saying, hey, should we be pulling our investment from Georgia in response? And the governor had to cancel a, an annual trip that governors have taken for years to Hollywood to court producers. And he even kind of stoked the controversy by at the Georgia GOP convention down in Savannah saying that um, C-list celebrities who criticize the gender could go take a walk. And it, it really prompted Stacey Abrams, who is a recurrent theme in this top 10 list, to go to, Was- to the Los Angeles herself and urged producers to resist what she called the moral pull to abandon Georgia. She said, essentially, give us time, invest in candidates, and not in walking out of Georgia and and see what happens. A lot of people were looking to to Tyler Perry to kind of step in on all of you know on all of this. Obviously, a, a black entrepreneur who has set up shop in in Atlanta and and really um, reinvigorated the south the south side of the city. Built a giant studio that played host to the the Democratic debate back in November, and he really sat on the sidelines of this debate for a long time. Um, but but ultimately said, look, I'm not happy with the heartbeat law, but this Georgia is my home and I've, I've invested, you know, a lot and I'm not going to pull that investment. Yeah. And it was telling at the ceremony opening, opening of his $250 million plus complex down at Fort McPherson, who showed up, Stacey Abrams and Governor Kemp. So he's, he struck a very unique alliance with two of the state's most dominant political players. So another, another item, number three, that would be on the top of any other list, uh, and certainly is, is probably one of the top, if not the top national story, is impeachment. How impeachment jolted Georgia politics and will continue to resonate through 2020. Exactly. And we saw Georgia's five Democrats in Congress really sit on the sidelines of this fight for a really long time. For the early and middle parts of of 2019, we saw a lot of other Democrats from other perhaps more liberal parts of the country come out very much in favor of launching impeachment proceedings against Donald Trump. This was during the the Robert Mueller saga with his his Russia probe. But we saw Georgia lawmakers kind of wait, sit on their hands. You know, they were definitely following the lead of Speaker Pelosi, who was saying, you know what, let's take a more kind of incremental approach. Let's investigate. Let's see what the evidence brings forward. Um, and then all of that changed one day in September. This was when we saw the, these new um, new reports about the president's calls with the, the uh, his counterpart in Ukraine, um, whether there was any sort of quid pro quo to investigate the, the Biden family and whether that was appropriate. And all of a sudden, within a day, within about 24 hours, you saw the majority of House Democrats flip. And all five of Georgia's House Democrats, including John Lewis, including Lucy McBath, the most vulnerable member, announced their support. And the, and the watershed moment and one of the more dramatic moments of the year was when John Lewis took the floor of the House and said that staying on the sidelines would, in his words, betray the U.S. Constitution. Exactly. And John Lewis, given his pivotal role in the civil rights movement, is seen as kind of a singularly moral figure in in Congress, but especially among House Democrats. When he talks, people really listen. And so people were very surprised when he didn't speak out in favor of impeachment earlier. Obviously, he's not a fan of Donald Trump. They've tussled, um, you know, on Twitter and and in public ever since Trump was inaugurated. Um, But this was seen, you know, his, 
his reticence to kind of step in was seen as a sign of respect to Nancy Pelosi. They've been allies for a long time. So when he came and spoke in the well of the House and framed it very much in moral terms, that was very much a key moment for Democrats. And we'd be remiss if we also didn't mention another Georgian who's been at the center of this, Doug Collins, who this year or in 2019 took on the role as the, the top Republican on the House Judiciary Committee and really led the charge as Trump's top defender, you know, both in these hearings and also on cable news as a very high profile surrogate. And built up an alliance with the president. He already had a, a, a close relationship with him, but built up an even stronger relationship with him that will play into two stories down from now. Let's get to number two, though. Is Senator Johnny Isaacson's retirement after about 45 years in state and federal politics from Georgia. And this is a story that I personally will never forget because I was on vacation hiking a mountain in Yosemite National Park when I missed the biggest story of my tenure in, <laughs> in Georgia politics. Thankfully, Greg was there to pick it up. But Johnny Isaacson announcing he would retire due to complications from his Parkinson's disease. And we don't like, we don't like to use hyperbole too much, but we did say in that story that it sent shockwaves in Georgia pol- politics. And it, it really did, right? I mean... Um, this was, we knew he was sick and we knew he had suffered from Parkinson's disease for years. Um, but he, he was always someone who said he's going to, he is going to serve his third term and, and even kind of put out feelers for a fourth term at the Georgia GOP convention down in Savannah. There were, there were Johnny Isaacson 2022 bumper stickers floating around. So this was someone who was the chairman of two different committees who had tremendous work ethic. And and so when he said he was going to serve through his third term, we all believed it. Exactly. And I talked to him every day on Capitol Hill. And, you know, yes, in recent months, he'd been using a wheelchair and a walker and and was not looking as spry as he did back in the day, but mentally was always very sharp. Mm -hmm. So when he said things like, I'm going to serve out my term, that was something to be believed. And I think a lot of Republicans, you know, there'd long been questions about how long Johnny Isaacson would stick around in elected office given his Parkinson's. Uh, but most of the establishment Republicans anyway were not going to challenge him. Yeah. And it, um, it, the Parkinson's disease was debilitating enough, but then you add on to it kidney surgeries and, and recent falls, and it became too much um, for, for Senator Isaacson to, 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 to serve in the way he, he wanted to serve. And it really did stun a lot of Georgia politicians. And suddenly it gave Governor Kemp the biggest decision, the biggest political decision of the year, if not his term. And before we get to that, though, it's worth spending a moment yeah. to talk about his political legacy. You know, he's the, the first Georgian ever to serve in the Georgia House, Georgia Senate, U.S. House, U.S. Senate. And um, I wrote a story recently about how he was very much the keeper of Georgia's parochial priorities on Capitol Hill. Whenever state leaders needed something something done of interest to the state, things like tax credits for the nuclear the Exactly. Um, water wars, anything like that. George or, uh, Johnny Isaacson was always the center, you know, at the center of those deals. And it's kind of unclear if anybody's going to really have the clout or the, the desire to, to take that place. And although he was a conservative Republican, who was, he, he also wasn't afraid to criticize President Trump. And he built alliances across party lines, really shown through in that really emotional moment um, at his farewell, where you had Mike Pence, John Lewis, lawmakers, Chuck, Schumer, Chuck Schumer, Mitch McConnell, lawmakers from both sides of the aisle, and then that really touching hug, embrace between John Lewis and John Isaacson. The whole world, kind of, you know, the whole the whole p- political world, at least, 
you know, had tugged at their heartstrings. Exactly. He was very much beloved, especially by Senate Democrats. But you also saw Mitch McConnell in an interview he gave me earlier this year said, if you could pick the most popular senator, if, if the senators could vote, Johnny Isaacson would win 100 to zero. So he's uh, Johnny spent his last few weeks in the Senate talking about bipartisanship and kind of the need for that and expressed a little bit of worry about kind of where we were. But at the same time, he, he you know, he's putting a good face on it and saying, and this farewell yeah. speech kind of invokes something that we've heard from him say a lot, which is he, he likes to say he divided people into two buckets, friends and future friends. And what better way to, to kind of sign off than that for, for, for Senator Isaacson? Which brings us to our top story of the year. This is something we never would have anticipated no. going into 2019. A name that we knew of a little bit, but only a little bit. Yeah. Kelly Leffler. Yeah, Kelly Leffler, a financial executive who had flirted with the run for Senate back in 2014, the, the seat that the open seat that, that David Perdue ended up winning, um, but had really retreated from any sort of politics since then. I mean, we're we don't see her at Republican gatherings. Frankly, I just met her in person for the first time, uh, you know, a couple of days ago. Um, so it's someone who who was not at the forefront of much discussion. I, in, in the initial story that we wrote the day that Senator Isaacson announced, I think I had her as a potential um, candidate for the seat, but really, honestly, only because she was at the same event I was at that day when the news broke, so she was right in my sight line, and I was thinking of her. And, and you know, when Senator Isaacson announced that he'd be leaving, he gave Governor Kemp a little bit of a heads up, but really not much of one. It was not a coordinated thing. It's not like Governor Kemp had somebody kind of waiting in the wings for this moment. So I think it really did catch everyone off guard when it happened in August. And in order to fill this position, Governor Kemp announced a really unorthodox selection process to for, for the person who would fill out uh, just one year of the term until November 2020 elections. Yeah, he had an online application that drew more than 500 applicants. Mo- a lot of some of them silly, you know, some of them jokes, um, but a lot of them, most of them serious. Doctors, lawyers, farmers, business people, um, you know, uh, chambers of commerce leaders, yeah, ambassadors, ambassadors, state lawmakers, and a few bigger names kind of rose to the forefront. Um, one of them was Kelly Leffler, who applied two hours or so before the deadline. But there were a lot of other big names in there that were much talked about before then. And you mentioned one of them. And maybe the, 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 the main rival to Kelly Leffler um, would be Doug Collins, who P- President Trump personally advocated for, not once, not twice, but multiple times in person and on the phone to, to Governor Kemp saying, you should pick Doug Collins, he's the best one for the seat. And and Congressman Collins has made his statewide ambitions very much well known even before this race. He he was very much seen as kind of an upstart House guy who, you know, he only arrived in the House in 2013 and already leads the Republican side of a committee, is on cable news every single day. So so we knew he was interested and really made the case not only privately, like, but also very, very publicly about what he'd bring to the table, you know, connections to the White House, to um, House leaders, fundraising prowess, experience you know, an already ready-to-go campaign and staff operation. But Governor Kemp, you know, really held firm at the end that, that Kelly Leffler was, was the person he was going to pick. He always said he wanted to look outside the box. He didn't necessarily say he would pick someone outside the box, but he would always wanted to look outside the box. And someone who's unconventional in Republican terms, this is just candid, a, a female Republican in the statewide office is outside the box. There hasn't, other than a, a public service commissioner, um, not since Karen Handel has there been a high-ranking Republican statewide official back when Karen Handel was Secretary of State. Um, so we're talking about a party dominated by older white men. And so Kelly Leffler, he hopes, 
will, will help appeal to suburban women and just women throughout the state in general who have turned off the party or at least, uh, or, you know, may, maybe fled to the Democrats or at least staying home in these elections. How she does that will be the biggest story, one of the biggest stories in 2020, because so far she's saying she's kind of she's hewing to the conservative line. She's saying she'll support President Trump. She will oppose impeachment. She will oppose expanding abortion rights. She will support gun expansion, gun rights expansions. You know the traditional conservative um, issues. But how she, you know, intends to broaden the party's tent remains to be seen. Exactly, she's a real line to toe. She she has to win over a lot of the conservative activists who are really rooting for Doug Collins toward the end there. Um, you know, who are firmly in the Trump camp want to see somebody kind of follow along with that rhetoric, but at the same time appeal to a lot of these suburban women who are especially turned off by Donald Trump, either who have sat, you know, sat at home or voted for people like Lucy McBath or some of these Democrats who, who um, flipped legislative seats. Um, you know, that's certainly a reason why Governor Kemp picked her, but another big thing we'd be remiss if we didn't mention is the fact that she can self-fund her campaign. 20 million she, bucks. 20 million dollars. To start with. Exactly. And not only is she going to be on the battle in 2020 and possibly a 2021 runoff, um, but also she's going to be sharing the ballot with Brian Kemp if she does win in, in 2022. The governor has a chance to pick his own running mate, which is very, very rare in in, in Georgia politics. And just as rare to, to have a dual Senate race between uh, two Senate races going on at the same time for Leffler's seat as well as David Perdue's seat. We have four Democrats, at least in that contest now, too. We don't know what Democrat will emerge. Matt Lieberman has announced that he will run against um, Kelly Leffler, but the party's establishment will probably back another candidate as well to get in that race. And that all kind of leads us to another 2020 story. Um, we could well be here a year from now talking about this Senate race that still hasn't ended. <laughs> Heaven help us. Yeah, in January 2021 <laughs> runoff. If no one emerges in this special election, and the thing about special elections are candidates from all parties are on the same ballot. There's no primary to hash out who the nominee is. So you could have multiple Republicans, multiple Democrats, multiple third-party candidates, all that on the same ballot. And if no one gets 50% plus one of the vote, if no one gets a majority of the vote, there's a runoff between the two top finalists that will test our patience and our sanity uh, into the beginning of 2021. Lots to think about. Yeah. Well, Tamar, what a year. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having and welcome, me. Again, welcome to Atlanta. You couldn't stay away. <laughs> That's all for this edition of the Politically Georgia podcast. Visit AJC.com slash politics for all the latest in Georgia news. I'm Greg Bluestein signing off. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word, AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.